Good morning, Cornerstone family. My name is Mike Berry. I'm one of the pastors here at Cornerstone. It's my privilege to bring us the Word of God this morning. Appreciate Jonathan praying for Noah. Um, Jack Witz will try to keep you guys updated. Uh, he is in the Lamone um, care group, and Kelly and Mario are heading over um, with him as well. Did want to give you guys a little bit of a report here. We had uh, nine guys that were able to go to our Faithful Men retreat this last weekend. We had a great time of fellowship, which included tri-tip Friday night, which was pretty crazy. Shooting a lot of guns Sunday morning. And um, great teaching. The theme was Men of Courage. Just had a great time um, with these brothers in the Lord including a uh, 6 a.m. hike up to Soldier Mountain as part of our Men of Courage theme. This was not an easy hike, um, but it was a lot of fun, and some of the guys were snowboarding down the sand dunes from the top of this mountain, which I, I don't know that I've really seen that before. But just a, a great time as I was hiking up that mountain, it kind of reminded me of another mountain that we're going to be talking about this morning, and that is uh, Mount Hor, the mountain on which Aaron, the first high priest of Israel, was gathered to his people. Uh, we're going to read the text this morning. If you'd open up to Numbers chapter 20, we're going to read a section here, and then we're going to pray, and then we're going to seek to discern both the warnings and the hope that I believe that the Holy Spirit has for us this morning in this text. So let's read verses 22 to the end of the chapter in Numbers 20. I'm reading from a New King James Version. Now the children of Israel, the whole congregation, journeyed from Kadesh and came to Mount Hor. And the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron in Mount Hor by the border of the land of Edom, saying, Aaron shall be gathered to his people, for he shall not enter the land which I have given to the children of Israel, because you both rebelled against my word at the water of Meribah. Take Aaron and Eleazar his son and bring them up to Mount Hor, and strip Aaron of his garments and put them on Eleazar his son, for Aaron shall be gathered to his people and die there. So Moses did just as the Lord commanded, and they went up to Mount Hor in the sight of all the congregation. Moses stripped Aaron of his garments, put them on Eleazar his son, and Aaron died there on the top of the mountain. Then Moses and Eleazar came down from the mountain. Now, when all the congregation saw that Aaron was dead, all the house of Israel mourned for Aaron 30 days. This is the word of God Almighty. Let's pray. Our Lord, we come to you this morning to this section of your word that has been given to us by your Holy Spirit. And you have told us that man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of your mouth. And this is part of that word. And so we come to you because we need to be fed this morning. 
We thank you that your word is sharper than any two-edged sword. It's able to pierce our hearts, divide our souls. We thank you, Lord, for the both the warnings and the hope that we have throughout the scriptures. Lord, this uh, passage before us brings great fear when we consider the fact that you were the one that appointed the death of Aaron, and you appoint the death of all men, women and children. And yet, we know that we can face that death as we are wrapped up in your Son, Jesus Christ. We ask God as we consider this text that your Spirit would move amongst us and that you would convict of sin, righteousness, and judgment. We pray, Father, that the lost would have their eyes opened, that your children this morning would be encouraged, and, Lord, that we would all be ready for the day when we will each go up the mountain to our own deaths to either face you to our eternal blessing or to be without you to our eternal ruin. We pray this in Christ's name, all God's people said, amen. So we consider a passage before us Uh, which is not an easy text. It's one of those texts that the first time you read it, you're asking yourself, what is going on here? It wasn't too awful long ago that I climbed uh, Sugarloaf over this direction for the first time. I don't know if you guys see that like mountain. It looks like Mount Kilimanjaro up here behind the the Bourne Center. I got the bright idea one day. I was kind of tired of being stuck in my office, and I didn't have any hiking shoes. I just kind of went out, kind of like I'm dressed now, and to my wife's chagrin, because I ruined a pair of pants that she had just bought for me at J.C. Penney. <laughs> and um, so I went up, and I decided to go up to Pigeon Hill, which is over here. It's the smaller one above the water tank. And I got the bright idea I was going to go up um, kind of the the western side of the face, which didn't look too bad to me but when I got about halfway up I suddenly started to question my decision making process saying to myself I'm 50 years old and I'm not dressed for this and if I fall and die in this mountain I don't know who's going to find me and um, and it was I couldn't really go back and I just had to go forward but eventually I did get to the top and realize that there's a nice little switch back right here on the northern side that I've gone up since then so I do not recommend going the west side. There's a nice switchback. I'll show it to you sometime if you want to know where it is. And uh, But as I got up there the first time, those of you guys that maybe have gone up to Sugarloaf, you may have seen this memorial for Scott Aaron Anderson, a 14-year-old boy. Um, I really don't know what the story is, other than this boy was 14 years old and his parents would have gone up here in 1989 to spread his ashes on the top of Sugarloaf. Haven't been able to find any other research but it's occurred to me many times when i've gone up that switchback of just what must these parents have been thinking what must the family members have been thinking as they're carrying the ashes of their 14 year old up the switchbacks to sugarloaf to set up this memorial and then spread his ashes on that mountain this morning as we consider our text i want us to really think about what must Aaron have been thinking when he's going up Mount Hor to his death? What is his younger brother Moses thinking as he's going up with his brother, knowing that his brother is going to die? And in this chapter, we see death all over the chapter. It begins with the death of Miriam. It ends with the death 
of Aaron, and it foreshadows the death of Moses. So the three major leaders of that first generation are going to die within a 12-month period. And we know back in Numbers 14 that that first generation was going to die when they would not go in and take the land and when they rebelled against the Lord. What we didn't know is that their main leaders would not survive and go into the land either. So I want us to ask this morning, not just what about Aaron's death, what must he have been thinking, but what about each one of us this morning in this room? Your death and my death is on God's calendar. If God were to have a Google calendar, so to speak, and he does have a calendar, not just your birth was on his calendar, but your death is on his calendar. It's appointed for man to die. What? Once after this, the judgment, every one of us in this room have a death day. And after our death day, we have a judgment. And so we're going to consider that this morning as we we've titled this message, Aaron hikes up the mountain to die. I know it's not what you want to necessarily think about this morning, but it is something for us to consider and think about. One of the things that our Puritan brothers and sisters in the past were really good at is reminding their children and their community of most important matters. One of the most important matters in life is for us to give due consideration for the day of our death and the fact that every one of us in this room will live somewhere forever. Ten trillion years from now, every man, woman, and child in this room will be conscious somewhere forever. And so there's good reason... For us to think about the day of our death. And are we ready for that day? And what is it that Aaron can teach us? So we're going to ask, why does the Lord tell Aaron about his death ahead of time? We're going to ask that question. We're going to try to ask this question. Why has this passage been written for us? And let's answer a little bit of that right now. When we look at our New Testaments, we see that the Old Testament is written for us at least for two reasons. One is as an admonition or warning. You can write this passage down, 1 Corinthians 10, verses 11 and 12. Paul says, Now all these things have happened to them as examples. He's talking about particularly some of the stories we're going to be looking at right now. Uh, They were written for admonition, upon whom the end of the ages have come. Therefore, let him who thinks he stands take heed, lest he fall. And so these types of passages are meant for the New Testament church to be an admonition, a warning to us that lest we think we are so high and mighty and that we cannot fall into the same condemnation and trouble, we should look at these stories. We should look at what happened to Israel in the wilderness. What even happened to Miriam, Aaron, and Moses as a warning and admonition to ourselves? But also write down Romans fifteen four that says this, whatever things were written before, speaking of our Old Testament scriptures, were written for our learning that we, through the patience and comfort of the scriptures, that is the Old Testament scriptures, might have hope. And so stories and narratives just like that we're going to be looking at this morning are not just meant as an admonition and a warning but they're meant to point us to hope. What hope could we possibly find in the death of Israel's first high priest? Well, I think we're going to 
see that this morning as we survey this section of God's word under five headings. And let's look at the first of those headings. And there is a an insert in your bulletin if you'd like to fill this out. The first heading is the children of Israel journey to the mountain where Aaron will die. Let's read verse 22 again together. Now the children of Israel, the whole congregation, journeyed from Kadesh and came to Mount Hor. So what we have here in this in this verse that we have Israel journeying to Mount Hor to the place where Aaron is going to die. Uh, Moses tells us that this is they're called the children of Israel. Here we're talking about the second generation. If you were to turn back to Numbers 14, you can do that on your own. You may remember that the first generation was supposed to go in and take the land. They rebelled. They did not want to take the land. God is ready. Yahweh is ready to wipe them out. But then Moses intercedes and prays. God doesn't wipe them out. But he does say their bodies will lie low in the wilderness. And the children, the little ones that they were worried about, they're the ones that are now going to go take the land, save Joshua and Caleb because they did obey. Uh, Three names are interestingly, interestingly not mentioned, though, as God is speaking to Moses. He doesn't say that Moses, Aaron, or Miriam are going to make it into the land. That's kind of left open at that juncture. Um, But here, the second generation, the children of Israel, the whole congregation, you're going to see in this narrative that we keep seeing the word whole or all. So in verse 22, it's the whole congregation, no man, woman, or child is left behind, journey from Kadesh to Mount Hor, but there's kind of a in between the lines here, the whole congregation, except for the one woman who's mentioned at the front end of this chapter, which is whom? Miriam. If you turn back to verse one, look at verse one. Then the children of Israel, the whole congregation came into the wilderness of Zen. That's not sin. It's Zen. These are two different wildernesses in the first month. And the people stayed in Kadesh and Miriam died there. And was buried there. This is the first death in the chapter. So Miriam dies. um, And then we have the waters of Meribah. Which we'll talk about here in a second. But then the whole congregation. Everybody save Miriam. That's a big deal. Miriam. Moses' sister. Aaron's sister. The first prophetess. She had very big impact in that early generation. Remember Miriam's the one that actually... Uh, goes and and uh, and and is participating and putting Moses in the basket, and then she's the one that runs back to her mother and and gets uh, her own mother to be the nurse for Moses when Moses is taken up by the princess of Egypt. So she's involved in all of this, and she dies. And there's not even any mention of the people of Israel mourning her death. She dies, and the very next verse, verse two, says. And there was no water for the congregation. So they gathered together against Moses and Aaron and began to chode or contend with them. Imagine that your sister dies. And there's not even time to mourn. The people begin to complain about the lack of water. And you can't even mourn your sister's death. 
There's no honor that is given to Miriam by the people. They just begin to complain. And yet in verse 22, we see all of the people save Miriam, the whole congregation, they journey from Kadesh to Mount Hor. What's happened in the previous paragraph is they go to Mount Hor. They have to go around Edom because the, the king of Edom is not given them passage. Rather, going into war against their brother Esau, they just go around and now they settle at Mount Hor. Mount Hor, by the way, literally means Mount Mountain. Hor is the Hebrew word for mountain. So it's kind of like Mr. Sir, Mount Mountain. Um, and throughout the rest of this text, it's just basically the mountain. The idea here is almost like the final mountain is the idea. They went to the final resting place of Aaron. We know that Moses is going to die on Nebo, but when we're talking about Aaron, it's the mountain, capital M, um, is where Aaron is going to die. So they journeyed to this place of his death. Let's look at the second heading, and that is the Lord tells Moses and Aaron to hike up the mountain where Aaron will die. And when we see the Lord's instructions, let's read it again. Verse 23 to 26. This hits us pretty heavily. The Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron in Mount Or or at Mount Or by the border of the land of Edom. So remember, they had to go around Edom, Edom on their left, as it were, saying, Aaron shall be gathered to his people, for he shall not enter the land which I have given to the children of Israel. Because you, plural, ye rebelled against my word at the water of Meribah. Take Aaron and Eleazar, his son, and bring them up to Mount Hor, and strip Aaron of his garments, and put them on Eleazar, his son. For Aaron shall be gathered to his people, and die their thud. That hits us pretty heavy, doesn't it? I mean, the first several times I've read this text, it just hit you as something very cruel why would the lord bring aaron up to the top of this mountain and then leave him to die it reminds you of the pagan practice of sinicide s-e-n aside the idea of leaving the elderly out to die or to kill themselves you guys have heard of this pagan practice many different cultures uh, Germanic tribe, the Heruli did it. There's uh, tribes in India, the Inuit people, the Eskimos. There's a uh, kind of a, a tradition that hasn't happened since 1939 is the last reported uh, occurrence where you just basically put your elderly out onto a, a piece of ice and leave them to die. It would happen in Japan. Uh, probably one of the most infamous uh, practices was in Italy or in Rome. Uh, there's a proverb, in fact, that dates way, way back of 60 year olds being thrown over a bridge. And um, in AD, around, around AD, the fourth century, Festus writes about this idea. The idea is, is to throw older people over a bridge to their deaths so that they would not be able to vote. Um, the, that's one way we could handle some of our election issues, I guess is uh, you don't really want the elderly to participate in the voting. And so the younger people would get rid of the elderly and and push them to their deaths. Um, 
<clears throat> these are not uncommon practices when you study various pagan cultures. And then when you bring that kind of backdrop to this text, it's like, is this a genocide? Is this basically just bringing Aaron up to the mountain to leave him to die? Um, or is there something else going on here? There clearly is, is something displeasing about what we see here. I mean, just think about this is announced to both Moses and Aaron. It's not just given to Aaron. The text says the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron. Go up to the mountain. You're going to take the priestly garments off of Aaron, put them on his son, and Aaron is going to die there. Why? Why is Aaron going to die? Well, look at verse 24. He's going to be gathered to his people. Um, he shall not enter the land because you, both of you, rebelled against my word at the water of Meribah. What is the water of Meribah? We'll turn back to the early part of the chapter. You guys probably remember this where everybody's complaining about the water. <clears throat> There's no water to drink. We wish we could just go back to Israel. Sometimes when, we, when we're reading these sections in the Old Testament, we think, man, I've heard that before. Yeah, Exodus 17, but that was the first generation. So 40 years later, after all of their parents and grandparents have already died and lied low in the wilderness, we're back to zero again. And the children are now complaining the exact same fashion 40 years later. To us, it's just a few pages. But to them, this is 40 years later, and we're doing the same thing again. So what do Moses and Aaron do? They do what Moses and Aaron do. They go before the Lord and they fall on their faces, right? Anytime stuff like this happens, they're like, okay, wrath is coming. Boom. They hit their faces and they start to inquire of the Lord. Lord, what do you want us to do? But surprisingly, while the glory of the Lord does appear, no wrath breaks out. But what the Lord does say over in verse 8 says to Moses, take the rod probably Moses's rod. You and your brother Aaron gather the congregation together. Speak to the rock. Now in Exodus 17, he hit the rock once. He's here told to speak to the rock before their eyes and it will yield water. Thus you shall bring water before them out of the rock and give drink to the congregation and their animals. And in fact, that's exactly what happens. Is, in fact, uh, Psalm 78 tells us that we're not talking about little trickles of water. We're talking about streams of water that come out of this rock that are able to give drink to hundreds of thousands of people and their cattle. So we're talking about lots and lots of water that is going to come. So we don't at this point, there's no wrath that's being spoken of that might be surprising to Aaron and Moses. So what do they do? Verse 10, Moses and Aaron well, verse 9, Moses took the rod, that's good, before the Lord as he commanded him, that's good. Moses and Aaron gathered the assembly together before the rock, okay. And he said, hear now you rebels, must we bring for you out of this rock, water out of this rock. And then Moses lifted his hand, many of you know the story, he struck the rock twice with his rod and what happens? No water comes out, right? Because if you don't obey the Lord, it doesn't work, right? He hit the rock twice, and so there's no water 
because you can't get good results from disobedience, correct? No, he hits the rock twice and water came out abundantly. And the congregation and their animals drank. Hundreds of thousands of people drank from the rock. Even though we have disobedience, we know there's disobedience because look at verse 12. Then the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron, because ye, plural, did not, what, believe me, to hollow me in the eyes of the children of Israel. Therefore, you shall not bring this assembly into the land which I have given to them. I don't know about you, but that seems pretty harsh. I mean, Miriam just died, right? Moses and Aaron have to be in mourning. Then there's complaining again. They're probably like, are we ever going to learn? This happened 40 years ago. They fall before the Lord. Instead of the Lord breaking out in wrath, he says, yeah, go ahead and speak to the rock. And I'm going to go ahead and give water to thousands of people. Basically, all we can tell is we don't know exactly what the sin is other than the fact they didn't believe the Lord and they didn't hollow the Lord in his in their eyes. Something to do with some people say it's the fact that Moses got angry and hit the rock rather than speaking to the rock that that he calls them rebels. All we know is that God says you guys didn't believe me and you didn't sanctify or hollow me before their eyes. Therefore, I hollowed myself before their eyes. Look at verse 13. This was uh, the water of Meribah because the children of Israel contended with the Lord and he was hollowed among them. God did hollow himself among them. How did he do that? Probably by not being a respecter of persons. Moses, Aaron, Miriam, their leaders. But guess what? When they rebel, they also get chastisement. God's not looking at Moses and Aaron and saying, you know what? You're my guys. We'll just let you have a pass. God is no respecter of persons. And even though it's Moses and Aaron, the first main prophet, the first high priest, they still get chastisement from God Almighty. And so in that sense, God was hollowed in their eyes because they saw, wow, if Moses gets God's chastisement, If Aaron gets God's chastisement, what does that mean for us? God is no respecter of persons. You could be Milton Vincent. You could be Aaron. You could be Moses. You can be Mike Berry. Doesn't matter if you're a pastor in this church. You will get the same type of discipline if you don't believe, if you don't hollow the Lord your God. And so God hollows himself before the people of God. This is this is uh, this should strike us as displeasing. This should this should fill our hearts with the sense of fear. That God would come to Moses and Aaron. I mean, think about it. All that these guys have been through and going before Pharaoh and throwing the rod before Pharaoh and all of the miracles and taking the people out of the land and going with them and suffering with them for 40 years. You get to just you're about ready to cross over and some words come out of Moses's mouth. You rebels. And our Lord says. You ain't going in. I don't know about you, but that hits me heavy. 
There's no pass for me just because I'm an elder. In fact, the Bible says, James 3, uh, that not many of you should be teachers because we will receive what? A stricter judgment. Those of us that think we want to get up and be teachers, we love the Word of God, we want to get up and, and teach the Word of God before God's people. Consider Moses. Consider Aaron. Consider Miriam. These types of things should hit us in a heavy way. And yet, consider the mercy that we see here. Consider the fact that in verse 23, the Lord actually spoke to Moses and Aaron. He didn't speak to Nadab and Abihu in Leviticus 10. You guys remember Nadab and Abihu? Right after one of the high points of the Torah, right after the the priesthood had been established, the tabernacle set up, they bring the sacrifice before God. Fire comes out from the Lord, licks up the sacrifice in pleasure and satisfaction. You guys have done exactly what I wanted you to do. Now I'm dwelling with you in a very special way. Not a few verses later, next chapter. Nadab and Abihu pick up their censers, put in strange fire. We're not exactly sure what that is. Maybe some sort of thing they picked up from Baal worship. And they go stumbling before the Lord in all likelihood drunk because of the context that comes later. They bring strange fire before the Lord. And the same fire that licks up the sacrifice licks up Nadab and Abihu. And Aaron is told not to mourn. They're dead right after this big sacrifice. No warning. God God does not stop and say, hey, Nadab and Abihu, let's have a chat. No, fire comes out and they are licked up. And then Moses says to Aaron and the other brothers, do not go out of the tabernacle. You have the holy oil on you, lest you also die. Grab them by their garments and drag them out. We are not to mourn them at all, but get the censers. Those are holy. Nadab and Abihu got no warning whatsoever. In verse 23, God comes to Aaron and Moses and says, let's have a chat. I'm not going to cut you off from your people. I'm going to speak to you now. You are going to go up to Mount Hor, Aaron, and Aaron will be gathered to his people. Not cut off from his people. Not annihilated like Nadab and Abihu. He'll be gathered to his people. And yet this is clearly a chastisement because we see verse 24, because you rebelled. That's the exact same Hebrew word that Moses used towards the people of God. You rebels. Now God is saying, no, you're the rebels. You're the rebels. And so therefore, Aaron, you will go up because of what happened at Meribah. And you will be stripped. Notice the, the, the other instruction here is not just that he will go up, but that he's going to be stripped of his garments and then the garments will be placed on his son and then he'll be left to die. Death is going to strip us all. We may have our honorific titles. You guys might come up and call me Pastor Mike. Your children may call you mother, father. You may have some doctor so-and-so in front of your name. Uh, We all have different types of clothing here. Some of us have expensive clothes. Some of us have cheap clothes. But death will strip us all. Um, Naked we came out of the womb. Naked we will go to our deaths. 
and then we will stand before the Lord. Whatever your accomplishments were in this life, whatever your bank account is, however much money you have in your checking, savings, your stocks, bonds, will all be stripped away. And that day has been appointed for you as much as it was appointed for Aaron. Aaron got the benefit of knowing that he was going to die that day. We don't know the exact day, but we do know the Bible tells us it has been appointed for you to die once after this. The judgment. Let's consider a third heading, and that is, this is amazing to me. They obey the Lord and hike up the mountain where Aaron does die. So consider this. Let's read this together. Verse 27, 28. So Moses did just as the Lord commanded. Implied Aaron does too. And they went up to Mount Hor in the sight of all the congregation. Moses stripped Aaron of his garments and put them on Eleazar, his son. And Aaron died on top of the mountain. So just consider this section that they obey the Lord They go up the mountain in the sight of all Israel. The idea would be is that Israel could see them going up the switchback, so to speak. I don't know if there were switchbacks or a trail, but they could see them going up the mountain. Just consider that Aaron obeys the Lord here. He knows that he's going up to his death. And yet in the morning he gets up and he gets dressed in his high priestly garments. And he foot by foot, one step in front of the other, he obeys the Lord and walks up this mountain knowing that up there I am going to meet my God and I'm going to die. And Moses obeys as well. Just think about that. What what do you think was going through their minds? What would have been going through Moses' mind as he's going up as the younger brother saying, I'm just as culpable, if not more culpable for the waters of Meribah. Eleazar is going up knowing that my father is going to die. Aaron is going up knowing I am going to die. And what types of thoughts, what types of rehearsals do you think were going through Aaron's mind when you just consider his life? As he goes up to embrace his chastisement humbly, Graciously, God reveals to him his death in advance. What types of sins do you think would have been going up through his mind as he's walking up that mountain? You think he was thinking about the golden calf incident? That day when Israel began to complain because Moses was not coming back down the mountain. And so he makes a golden calf for them to worship. And yet he didn't get whacked at that time. You know, he didn't die at that time because the Bible tells us, Moses tells us that he prayed for the Lord wanted to kill him, wanted to destroy him. But Moses prayed for him. And so he survived. Do you think he was thinking about his own joining the fact they didn't restrain his sister and their complaints against Moses. He could have restrained his sons as they stumbled drunk before the Lord in the temple and went to their deaths. 
Perhaps he was thinking about the fact that he had the opportunity to restrain Moses in his anger at the waters of Meribah, and yet he stood back and said nothing. What types of sins would be going through your mind if you knew that today you were going to go to your death? What types of things might be going through your mind? What types of failures? Unfinished business? No doubt Aaron is thinking about the fact that I've gone, I've journeyed all this way to get the people of God where they can go into Canaan, hoping that I'm going to go enjoy the land of milk and honey myself, and yet I'm going to be left on the outside. I'm going to die. This should hit us rather heavily. And yet think about the other aspects of Aaron's life, that he was the mouthpiece of the Lord before Pharaoh. He saw Moses turn uh, he saw the Moses's rod turned to a serpent. They saw all of the miracles. Many, many times he falls on his face with his own brother at his side before the Lord. He repented and humbled himself many times, including in this final act on earth as he meekly just walks up the trail step by step to his own death. What kind of disposition do you think he was expecting to see when he met his God? As he came over the breach, who knows what he would have seen? Did he see the angel of the Lord? Did he see the glory of the Lord? What exactly would have been the view that he would have seen when he got up there for that installation service with his son? What was he expecting to see? I know what I'd be expecting to see. I'd be expecting to see God's wrath. So I would consider my own life as Aaron's considering his life. I'd be expecting to brink over the edge and just see the destroyer. What, what would have Aaron been expecting? But what he gets is not what he was expecting. Think about this. that Aaron goes up in the high priestly garments, which are a type of Christ's righteousness. The Lord in his grace announces his death. And then allows him to hike up the mountain in the righteousness of Christ. In view of all of Israel to see their first high priest go up the mountain. Then when he gets to the top of the mountain, they go through an installation service where Moses is taking off the high priestly garments and putting them on his surviving son, Eleazar. No doubt, as Aaron is on top of the mountain, he's thinking of, who this could have been. This could have been Nadab or Abihu, but they were wiped out. But now I get to watch my son, Eleazar, carry on in my stead. What father wouldn't want to see their own child continue the ministry, the high priest ministry, after their death? I mean, to me, I, I couldn't think of anything better than to know that one of my children were going to continue on in the ministry after I die and to continue on before the Lord Almighty. And so he gets to see, he gets to actually participate in this installation service of Eleazar as the next, the second high priest. And then the Bible doesn't really tell us much. It kind of shields us, shields our eyes. When you look down at verse 28 again, Aaron died there on top of the mountain. It doesn't tell us how that happened. There's almost kind of a dignity, like we're not allowed to really look in and peer. Did, did he lay down and just go to sleep? Did the Lord put him to sleep? We do know from other passages that Moses and Eleazar buried him, so he died. 
And then he was buried. This wasn't just a sin aside where he's left there because he's useless. He was brought up there and was allowed to participate in an installation service for his own son. And then Moses and Eleazar buried him. And then they come down. There is a clue, I think. Look at Psalm 106, verse 15. There's a little bit of a clue of what disposition Aaron would have met with as he arrived at the top because we see God's disposition towards him in Psalm 106, which would have been written long after his death. Verse 16, when they envied Moses in the camp and Aaron, the saint of the Lord. Here, Aaron is called the saint of the Lord. He's not called the rebel of the Lord. He's not called the unfinisher. He's not called. He's, he's not referred to as the one who was cut off from his people. And then over in Psalm 116, verse 15, we read this, that precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his saints. Think about it from God's perspective. While there's chastisement, while there is discipline here, when God looks at the death of his own, it's a coming home party. It's precious to the Lord. To us, it's horrific to consider our own death. But if we really can see it from God's perspective, that really, what is this life other than a journey to our death? It's a journey to come into the presence of our, our highest happiness. And so for God to say precious in his sight is the death of his saints. No doubt God has looked at Aaron and, and seen his checkered record and and his past. And yet he calls Aaron a saint. And he says of people like Aaron and like you, if you know the Lord Jesus Christ, precious in the eyes of the Lord is the death of his saints. And so reading between the lines, I believe that when Aaron got up to the top of that mountain, whatever he met with, it was something that was precious. Something that was precious in the eyes of the Lord. I think if I was him, I'd have been in, a, in holy fear walking up the mountain, going on those switchbacks. But then once Aaron gets to the top, goes to the installation service, what he was met with is a reminder that he's dressed in the righteousness that only God can provide. And that God, Yahweh, looked at this as a precious time for Aaron to not be cut off like Nadab and Abihu, but to be gathered to his people. Which brings us to our fourth heading. That is this, that Moses and Eleazar came down the mountain without Aaron. Look at verse 28, the second half of it. Then Moses and Eleazar came down the mountain, that final mountain, that final resting place. No doubt they would have come down the switchbacks. All of Israel saw them go up. Probably three people go up. Some people think that there may have been some of the elders. My guess is it was three went up and two come down. And when they see two people coming down, <clears throat> then <clears throat> the people of Israel are fifth heading begin to mourn when all the house of Israel sees that Aaron does not come down the mountain. They mourn him for 30 days. <clears throat> How is it that they know? Let's look at verse 
29, now when all the congregation saw that Aaron was dead, all the house of Israel mourned for Aaron 30 days. How did they all know he was dead? Well, he didn't come down, first of all, but they probably also, ancient uh, Jewish commentaries called Targums indicate that um, according to ancient Jewish tradition is that Moses and Eleazar would have had the signs of mourning upon them. They would probably already would have put ashes upon their heads. They probably would have already torn their clothing. As they're coming down the switchback, they can already see Moses and Eleazar in all likelihood crying and mourning. No doubt in, in Moses's heart, he's not just thinking about the death of his dear brother. It's also the death of his dear sister is still fresh in his heart. And so as they're coming down, just these groans and mourns of, of two of the great leaders of Israel. And so they see this scene as they come down the mountain. And now Eleazar is dressed in the high priestly garb. And all of the congregation, this whole second generation now, these people that were complaining against Aaron at the beginning of the chapter, now honor him. At the end of the chapter, they honor him. Nadab and Abihu died and were not to be mourned. The average mourning time was seven days. They don't give him merely a seven day funeral. They give him a 30 day funeral. This would have been a time of of ashes and torn clothes and weeping, but also a time to share stories, to share of the feats of the sainthood of Aaron, the things that he did on God's behalf. They would have sat around their campfires at night and told stories of how the Lord used Aaron for his glory. They would have reminisced about the ways that that he stood for his God. And they would have painted his shortcomings in the best of colors, especially in the light of God's righteousness. Let's consider some warnings and hope that I believe we should take from this passage. Passages like this are written for our hope, the New Testament tells us, and also for our admonition. Let's start with admonitions. The first admonition I think that we can consider is that we should take sin seriously. Even as the people of God, there's no question in this passage that Aaron is a saint, right? There's no question in this passage that he died in a precious sense before the Lord. At the same time, there's no question in this passage that Aaron died because of a particular sin. He sinned against God's people in not hallowing God before the people, and not believing God before the people. And so God, who is not a respecter of persons, hallows himself before the people in taking Aaron out. Aaron dies as a chastisement for a particular sin. And in the church, it is absolutely appropriate and we should always think about the fact that we are rescued from the second death because of Christ's death burial and resurrection as we've sung this morning at the same time the bible gives us ample warning not to despise the warnings of the lord 
as it says in 1 Corinthians, as Paul is warning the Corinthians as they go to the communion table, he says, you guys should be very careful how you come to the table and you should examine yourselves. Some of you are sick and some of you sleep because you are not examining yourself and you are not considering your sin. Think about this, brothers and sisters, this morning. Aaron, a saint of the Lord, who we have no questions about his eternal salvation, did not die merely because of the deist clock that just moves. These weren't just circumstances. Aaron died because God looked at a particular rebellion and said, you will not go into the land, you will die. And it just begs the question, how many we know that we have to balance this with the whole scope of Scripture But how many of us get sick? How many of us would even go to our death because of lack of repentance of sin? Brothers and sisters, we should be warned by passages like this. The intent from the New Testament, not from the Old Testament, is let him who thinks he stands take heed, what? Lest he fall. Those of us that would fiddle around with sin, and and pride and complaining and lust and think that it's no big deal. We should all consider that the wages of sin is what death. And when we re, when we recite passages like that, it doesn't just mean that what we deserve for sin is eternal death. It also means every one of us in this room, we will die our own personal deaths and we will die our own personal deaths because we sin. And we will all die our own personal deaths, probably in the mind of God, because of particular sins. And so we should be warned. To repent of particular sins. As leaders, I think of myself as a leader here at Cornerstone. We need to be very careful how we treat the Lord's children and treat them with love and respect and the fear of God. None of our pastors, none of our elders here are anyone's master or Lord. Moses and Aaron partially got themselves into hot water because of the way they treated the people of God in calling them rebels. And thinking that they were the ones that needed to bring God's wrath on the people rather than God himself bringing judgment. Parents, any one of us as leaders need to give due consideration to the positions that we have of authority. That God is no respecter of persons. And just because I'm a dad or just because I'm a pastor or you have some authority in your position at work doesn't mean that we can just trample over the people of God. At the same time, consider the fact that God loves you and loves me enough to chastise us. He looks at us and he sees things in our lives that need discipline and he'll bring things into our lives in order to discipline us because he loves us. Hebrews, right? In the book of Hebrews, we're told to not despise the chasing of the Lord because those whom he he loves, he what? He chastens, he reproves us. If you're not reproved, it means you don't really have God as your father. But if we are reproved, we should take heart. And so there's ample opportunity. I noticed I think everybody in this room is still living. 
And so there's ample opportunity, right? We're still alive that even if you are sensing the chastening of the Lord in your life, take heart, you're a child of God, and we can repent right now. And God can restore the years that the locust has taken. I've noticed just in my life how that as you read through the Old Testament and New Testament, how many times do you see God's prophets bringing a warning? And then right away, as soon as somebody says, and they cried out, next verse, and the Lord listened. Look how many times God is compassionate on kings like Manasseh, on Ahab, for heaven's sake, Jehoshaphat. As soon as people cry out to the Lord, the Lord is quick to have mercy upon his people and can and will restore even years that the locust has eaten in your life. Perhaps you're sitting here this morning and you're thinking, I have walked in such sin for so long. I've wasted years of my life. What can I possibly do? There's no hope for me. Well, brother, sister, if you are sensing that, that, that sense, that, that weight of guilt, there is hope for you because your conscience is still alive. And if the Lord is opening up your eyes, you can turn to him and say, Lord, forgive me, please help me. And we serve a God that is so kind and so loving and so willing to forgive at any moment. And I've seen in my own life time and time again that so many times, even when I'm not humbling myself, God will come through his Holy Spirit and humble me and then move me to call upon him and every time I call upon the name of the Lord, he's just so kind and gracious. It's befuddling to me how the Lord just loves us. Here is Aaron going up the mountain to his death. And he gets this God who says, precious in my eyes is the death of this saint. And takes him to be gathered to his people. Let's also consider, brother and sister, that as we walk this life, we will. There, there is no one in this room that is going to end your life in a finished way. We will all end unfinished. Think about that. And you consider the passages, all the different characters in Scripture. One of the themes of the Old Testament, New Testament is that people come to know the Lord and they serve the Lord and God blesses them, but they fall short. Aaron fell short. Moses fell short. Miriam fell short. Jehoshaphat got into some weird shipping scheme that was a disaster. Josiah went unwittingly out into battle and died. It's like time and time again. And then when you even get to the New Testament, you see things just not going well at the end of certain people's lives. The Apostle John is bowing before an angel at the end of his life. What is that? But take hope, brother and sister, that it's Jesus who is the author and finisher of our faith. He starts it. He finishes it. That's why Paul can say in 2 Timothy 4, I have fought the fight. I have finished the course. I have kept the faith. I've kept the gospel. Not because he finished the race on his own and he's feeling like I've, I'm just so, I'm so there at the end. All you got to do is read the rest of 
Second Timothy and realize he was not so there in the end. There were so many problems that were left untied and unfinished at the end of his life. But he's able to look at Christ in whose righteousness he dwells and to say, I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. And so it is there are good reasons, brothers and sisters, for us to one be warned but also to have great hope as Eleazar could not or as as Aaron could not get into the land. It's a reminder that only Christ is going to get us there. We can't get there through the priesthood of Aaron. Moses couldn't get us into the land through the law. Only Jesus can get us all the way there. We're just like Eleazar. We go up with Aaron. We go up with our Christ. and We get dressed in Christ's righteousness. Consider this, that there is another prophet. There is another high priest. Jesus is everything that Aaron failed to be. And yet Jesus did not fall short. And yet he died. In fact, he died a much worse death than Aaron. Jesus went to Golgotha. He went up the hill on our behalf and he was stripped like Aaron. And yet we are dressed in his righteousness. We are clothed in the righteousness of Christ. And just as Moses prayed for his brother that the destroyer would not take him out, Jesus intercedes for us that we would make it not based upon our own righteousness, but based upon the righteousness of of almighty God. Jesus says in the book of Luke, I say to you, my friends, do not be afraid of those who can kill the body. And after that, have no more that they can do to you. But I will show you whom you should fear. Fear him who, after he's killed the body, has the power to cast you into hell. Fear him. And then right after that severe warning, Jesus says, Are not five arrows sold for two copper coins and not one of them is forgotten before God, but the very hairs of your head are numbered. Do not fear. Therefore, you are of more value than many sparrows. How in the world can Jesus couple those two ideas together? Fear. God can throw you into hell, but don't fear. You're of more value than many sparrows. I'll tell you why Jesus can do those kinds of things is because. He knows in his audience there's two different types of people. There are people who are dressed in in his righteousness and they believe and they need to be reminded that, yes, be warned. Let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. But don't fear in the ultimate sense because I love you. And at the same time, there are people in his audience that just don't get it. Their eyes aren't open yet. They're religious and they think that they're going up the mountain dressed in their own righteousness. They're like Nadab and Abihu stumbling drunk before the almighty fire of God, thinking everything's okay. And then boom. We have a God that is powerful and severe, and yet he's so gracious and kind. John Piper says God has made human beings, particularly Christians, to be safely afraid of him. We should be safely afraid of God if we're in Christ. If you're not in Christ, take the word safe out. There's no reason to feel safe before Almighty God unless you're in Christ. If you're in Christ, then surely be safe. Feel that safety, but safely afraid. Let's end with this. Ask this question. When will you die? Aaron had the gracious benefit of knowing that he was going to die on a particular day 
and walked up the mountain to his death. And you and I, we don't know the exact day of our death, but we do know this. It's been appointed for man to die once. After this, the judgment. God knows the day of your death. The rest of that passage says, So Christ was offered once to bear the sins of many. To those who eagerly wait for him, he will appear a second time apart from sin for salvation. <clears throat> Brothers and sisters, I think there's a key there. Is we can, I can, we can talk about the wrath of God. I can scare you with death. We can talk about that we can slip off at any moment. The wages of sin is death. And that can do absolutely nothing for you. You know how many people say, let's eat, drink, for tomorrow we what? Some people, they hear about death, and all it does is say, well, let's just party up then. No, what will get us the next place? What will get us to the next step? It's understanding that there's something exciting to wait for, and that's Jesus Christ himself. That he is the treasure. He is the great treasure there is some glory. There is, there is a God who cares about us, and he is worth it all. Christ offered, he's offered once to bear the sins of many to those who eagerly wait for him. Are you eagerly waiting for your Lord Jesus Christ? It's only the Holy Spirit that can put into your hearts the desire to eagerly wait for him rather than to eagerly waiting for the next idol that comes down the train. The Holy Spirit can pour the love of Christ into you so that you now have the power of a new affection that will allow you to say no to your idols and yes to righteousness because Jesus really is worth it. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will not be left alone to die. You will not be left alone for sinicide if you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Christ will bring you across the Jordan. Christ will be there as your advocate when you die. Death is a fearsome thing. It is unnatural. But when we die, Christ will be there for you if you believe on him. You cannot finish on your own. Jesus is the author and finisher of our faith. Believe on him and you will be gathered to your people. Let's pray. Our Lord, we thank you so much for this passage. It is heavy to think about the fact that we've all been given life. None of us came into this life by our own volition. Nobody in this room willed their own birth. Yet we go throughout this life enjoying the food and the rain and the wind and the family and the love that you've given us. And there is somewhere down the road, somewhere on your calendar, our death awaits. So often we live our lives as if that day will never arrive, but it will arrive at some point. And after each of our deaths, we will face you either alone or we will face you dressed in Christ's righteousness with Jesus as our advocate And Jesus has never lost a case. We thank you, our Lord Jesus, that you are our lawyer and you win all of your cases. And so we proclaim you as our Lord this morning. We pray that you would open up the eyes of the blind this morning who think that they're somehow going to move through death's curtain 
and survive on their own, and they will not. We thank you for your love and your grace that you have given us such loving warnings and admonition to be ready for the day of our death so that we can cling to you in this life and have not just the hope of a precious death, but a hope of an abundant life here on earth and then for thousands and millions of years. Every one of us, Lord, we know will live somewhere forever. I pray, Lord, that everybody in this room would live forever in your presence. I pray if there are those this morning who do not know you that are still in the kingdom of darkness, and if they were to die today, would go to their eternal damnation, I pray that you would awaken them. I pray that you would awaken them to salvation, something that only your Holy Spirit can do. And so we, uh, we commend that to you, and, to, and we trust you to do your work. We pray this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Savior, and all God's people said, Amen. Thank mm-hmm. you.